The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. It's officially the last weekend of summer. Oh, no. So please, let's send it off with a bang uh, with the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Uh, Listen, Audi is coming out with a new car uh, just for cowboys. It's called the um, Audi Partner. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Ah, another, uh, well, I guess we'd call it a classic from Duff. (laughs) He's in South America with Guns N' Roses, hopefully cultivating uh, and harvesting more jokes. Their tour started up again yesterday. They'll hit Mexico, Asia, Australia, and New Zealand before the year is over. And don't forget about Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the Four Leaf Clover. We are leaving out of Miami on February 2nd. To the sixth, going all the way to our own special island. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com for all lineup and cabin information. We still have cabins left, and it's going to be the best vacation you've ever had. The vacation of a lifetime, ChrisJerichoCruise.com. All right, today, it's the business of wrestling with Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics. He's the guy who gets all the ratings for AEW, WWE, Impact, the TV shows, YouTube views, social media numbers, pay-per-view numbers. Shares them along with data analysis. He charts what every show is doing in terms of audience and demographics and what it means in the big picture of success and growth for each company and the wrestling business in general. I am, of course, the demo god. Uh, So I look forward to seeing Brandon's reports and breakdowns. I also thought it would uh, be good to let him uh, explain ratings and why uh, so many people watching any given show, Dynamite, Rampage, Raw, or SmackDown, is not nearly as important as the demographic breakdown. He explains the demos and why the age of the viewers is more important than a total audience number. He's also explaining cable rankings and talks about how streaming has really changed the landscape of media consumption and watching habits. Talks about cable versus streaming, why both are important, advantages they each have, and how it's impacting and changing the future of wrestling, live TV shows and house shows, and pay-per-view events. Brandon also has some predictions about future WWE TV deals and AEW's next TV deal, and how AEW's next TV deal could really shake up the wrestling business overall. He's got info and thoughts on the WWE Network shutting down and moving to Peacock. He's talking about AEW's potential for streaming and what might happen if any of the big tech companies, Amazon Prime, Apple, or Netflix decide they want the streaming rights to Dynamite, Raw, or SmackDown. Fascinating conversation with Brendan Thurston, starting right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho.
So, um, I uh, called myself the Demo God, not just as a catchy name, but for a reason, because I really, since AEW started, got into the whole ratings and the demos of Dynamite and NXT and uh, Raw. So I was always waiting for the ratings every week. And some of my friends were getting them before me. And it kind of was like, how the hell are you getting these ratings before me? And they said, well, they were subscribing to WrestleNomics. And Brandon Thurston was the name I kept hearing over and over again. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today. The creator of WrestleNomics, Brandon Thurston, is here. Yeah, well, the creator actually is Chris Harrington, who I think you know. Is Harrington uh, the creator? Because yeah, he's the guy yeah. that I was getting the ratings from, but later than my friends that yeah. were getting them from wherever you were getting them from. Yeah, no, he, he created this, this WrestleNomics brand, which I think is a cool name. He was doing podcasts and wrestling business research and things like that going way back. But he started using the name in 2013. He even had you know, some of his early podcasts he, he did with Brody, with Brody Lee. Gotcha, right, right. Yeah. I was vaguely aware of him because, you know, as, as I call him Mookie, he was doing some indie stuff and he knew a lot of <laughs> indie wrestlers, including Brody and Colin Delaney and people like that. So he moved away from Rochester about 2005 or so and moved to Minnesota. But we, we knew a lot of the same people. And as, you know, the WWE Network network was being launched i was really interested in that and to see how a new form of media was going to change the wrestling business because i think that's a, a really common recurring theme is how different new forms of media have you know continually changed the wrestling business but when the network was getting launched i was reading a lot of his work and you know i was starting to do some writing on the wrestling business myself and and that's how we came to know each other mookie yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, because you're, you're up from the Buffalo area, right? Right, yeah. I've always lived in Buffalo. Because Danny Garcia actually mentioned your name when we did Talk as Jericho as well. You trained with him or trained him, or were you actually in the wrestling business prior to being a pontificator, shall we say? Yeah, no, I've, I've been an independent wrestler since 2003, since I was 18 years old. So when, when Daniel came around, we, we have a, a school called Grapplers Anonymous, and I was training helping people train there from about 2015 to at the beginning of the pandemic I stopped going regularly but yeah it, it's Mikey every night myself and Pepper Parks I would say were his original trainers yeah we, we train him the basics and uh, you know psychology and how to put put a match together he's somebody who, who stood out right away as as especially if uh, you can imagine a younger scruffier looking Daniel Garcia he might not on at first glance look like somebody who's going to become a signed wrestling star uh, but once you got to know him and, you know, worked with him, I think there's a lot of qualities, not just his wrestling ability, but him, who he is as a person and how he conducts himself as a person that make it pretty clear to me that he's he was going to go places. Yeah, there's a lot behind him from what you see just, uh, you know, face to face originally, because I noticed the same thing, too. And that's why when he mentioned your name, I was like, oh, OK, everything was starting to come together. So I, I guess my question would be, because from, from hearing your name, I equate you with WrestleNomics. So how did you, because as we know, there's a lot of ways to make a living in the wrestling business. How did you go from being this independent wrestler, like you mentioned, for many, many years into now one of the leaders of the science behind the ratings and the whole game of, of that business of, of wrestling? People sometimes figure, you know, I must have gone to school for, for math or for economics or anything. I actually went to, to UB, University of Buffalo, and I have a philosophy degree. I guess I imagine myself as being more of a writer, 
but yeah, I, I was an independent wrestler and, you know, before I was an independent wrestler, I was, you know, very involved in online stuff and tape trading, very into in my teenage years and into, you know, trading a lot of Japanese tapes. I definitely have the, the second uh, J cup with, oh. with a Lionheart on it. <laughs> but yeah, I was super into that. And I was doing some writings that, that was, would have been like when I was 17, 15, even became an independent wrestler for a lot of my early adult life. And like I said, since about 2015, I've been writing about wrestling, and that's picked up a lot of traction. I guess I'm doing something different than the typical wrestling website is doing, hopefully. Uh, not to take anything away from them, but to, to try to really unpack a lot of the questions that I think people talk about and they have conversations about and they debate about, about you know who, who's a draw and you know what, what does this rating really mean? And I'm, I'm trying to unpack a lot of that stuff because I think that that a lot of the business information is really easy to understand and you know wrestling with the winners and losers being predetermined i think people are looking to some sort of objective measurement to say is what we saw on tv can that be validated as a good idea or not and we look to the the business output to validate that you know that is become in my view the sacred text of wrestling and everybody can interpret even that in their own way so that's I'm just trying to help everybody understand that and help myself understand that because I think you know the the story of the business is one of the most interesting stories in wrestling well I, I think the fact that television has become the only revenue that really matters in wrestling now in 2022 in the future pay-per-view Pretty much non-existent, although not quite the case for AEW, and we can discuss that. And WWE pay-per-view doesn't matter because it's all done through Peacock. And house shows now, I mean, they're an old habit, I'd say, in WWE. But, for example, in AEW, we don't really do live events. We might have done one because they're just really not financially feasible or economically smart. So television ratings are everything. Now, there's a lot of old-school wrestling fans that will go against that but it really is the truth and, and i'll let you take over am i correct in saying that yeah the, the wrestling business like economically in terms of where the money comes from where the revenue comes from is turned upside down in the last 30 years or so when, when i was a kid growing up it was all about the house shows and i you know i used to watch saturday morning wrestling and there would be some local promos to promote the next next house show in buffalo or niagara falls wf superstars that was on my local fox affiliate I don't know, WF might have been paying even to have that slot. Right. As opposed to it's very much the other way around now. And there was pay-per-view. And there was very little money coming in for just producing your weekly TV show. And over the years, as the cable bundle has become distressed and as TV networks are eager to hang on to the viewership that they have and to hang on to the top programs that they have so they can hang on to the subscribers of on cable and satellite that they have, the most viewed TV shows especially those maybe top five or top 10 TV shows on a given night, those have become way more valuable than they were in the past. Because as cord cutting happens, as younger people never sign up for cable, the most popular TV shows have become super valuable. And some of the most popular TV shows on any given night, whether it's Monday, it's Raw, on Wednesday, it's often Dynamite in the top one or two or five, certainly in the top five lately. Uh, Smackdown's usually number one across all of TV, I would say maybe maybe about half the time they're number one on Friday. So those are really valuable TV shows. And you know, as, as that's become the case, those shows are able to demand 
in WWE's case, hundreds of millions of dollars a year just in the U.S. So it's way more money than they would be making if they were just relying on house shows. And at the same time, production values have become really expensive. You know, I, I think it costs some, somewhere in the neighborhood of you know half a million dollars to put on a mm-hmm. pretty good-looking TV taping. Maybe it's a, a big show. It might, co- might cost a million dollars to produce that event. So it's becoming really expensive to run the events, to make them look nice for TV. And it's becoming really lucrative if you have a really popular wrestling show. So it's, and it's all guaranteed money. So in, in WWE's case, it's you know $265 million a year. For Raw on an average annual basis, two hundred five million dollars a year for SmackDown. WWE decided it was better to sell their essentially their pay per view and their library rights to NBC Universal for Peacock, as there's more and more investment in streaming, and they're making more money. They're making you know reportedly two hundred million dollars a year to have all that content on Peacock. That's more than they were making for the U.S. portion of their W Network revenue, which was. I would say somewhere around, I don't know, just over $100 million a year, I want to say, for for the U.S. portion. So they're definitely making more, and it's lower risk because it's guaranteed. It's really turned everything on its head, and there's still house shows for WWE. There's still obviously a live event. There's still ticket sales, and that's good revenue. Mm-hmm. AEW drew well over, I think it's, what, 13,000 people to the United Center for Forbidden Door, yeah. over a million-dollar gate. So that's important, too, but that is the smaller portion of the revenue compared to media. It's really transformed from a live events business to a media business. And we think of media as just think of it as selling some form of video, whether that's live video or whether that's, you know, something in a video library. So how could, because in, in the mix of that too is, is dynamite, which, so in our first three months in existence, dynamite was on TNT as a ad rev share program. But then after those three months, because the demos were so good, they re-signed us, I believe it was $160 million over four years, something along those, maybe $175 million, something. Tony Khan has tweeted $175 over four years, so that would come out to about $44 million a year. That's a huge amount of money, but out of that $44 million, you're saying it costs about half a million a week to do the actual television, which... Half a million times 52 is 25 million. So half of that right off the bat yeah. is or over half is, is just for television production alone. And, and so that's just in the U.S., that $44 million. That's just from what is now Warner Brothers Discovery. And that, I believe that escalates over time a little bit. So it's, it's a four-year deal. So you start off with 44 would be the average across those four years and it would get a little bit higher each year. Right. But AEW also has international partners that – probably pay them something, uh, including in, in India. W has a deal in India. That's their second biggest TV market. So I would, yes, maybe UK, I'm not sure. But AW has ITV in, in the UK, and they have Eurosport, I believe, in, in India. Eurosport, and then obviously TSN in Canada. Right. And I, But the ITV deal in the UK is, I think, one of the biggest channels you can be on. And it's actually bigger than, the, than WWE's deal in the UK. Yeah, I, I see the TV ratings sometimes for the UK, and Dynamite seems to be doing better than either Raw or SmackDown, which I'm not quite sure how to read that. But I had, had people tell me that, well, given the platforms that they're on, that, that would make sense. 
So $44 million a year. And then there's international TV revenue as well. And then there's ticket revenue that helps as well. But it's, uh, it's really expensive to put on a, a wrestling show. But uh, there's, there's more ways to make money from it than there were in previous decades. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So let's go back just uh, briefly. We can discuss the ad rev share deal. Yeah. How in the hell could the company have even made money on that? Because that essentially, well, explain what that means, what ad rev is. My understanding in the, in the situation for AEW is that the network was selling the ads, and that they still are, but that AEW would get some share of that, maybe 45%, maybe 50%, and that revenue would go to AEW. That's not nearly enough for AEW to be a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the, what, what they're getting now is sustainable. I, I, people ask me all the time whether or not AEW is profitable. I understand Tony Khan has said in a Forbes article that it's not for uh, an investment that, that he made in gaming that uh, it would be profitable. But it's really AW's next TV deal that will probably, if it's a big increase from the current one, that will really make AEW a successful business. But yeah, it's the, the ad revenue share alone would not cover it. Would not sustain it. But the ad rev was kind of just a start. And if you yeah. guys do well, we'll renegotiate. And that's exactly what happened. Right. So you mentioned, you know, the next TV deal will kind of tell the tale. And Tony's even said himself, it's going to be historical. It's going to be a historical moment in the business, depending on how this deal goes. Now, once again, let's talk quickly about the demos and really let people understand what exactly this means. Because there's still people that see, oh, well, they're not drawing over a million or they're not even cracking a million or they're barely cracking a million. That really has very little bearing on how valuable a TV show is, correct? Especially in Warner Media's case, I understand they very much value the the demo of eighteen to forty nine. So eighteen to forty nine is the demo that most ads are sold against. What's a large portion of the audience for almost any TV show is people over the age of fifty, and people under the age of eighteen are almost not watching TV at all. Mm-hmm. If you look at a lot of uh, the uh, the top shows for just total viewership, a lot of those shows will be cable news programs. And if, if you, you're checking those out and you watch what the ads are, it's a lot of, I don't know, maybe like vitamin commercials and uh, <laughs> you know, invest in gold and stuff like that. But the, the belief in, in the advertising you know, market is that people between the ages of 18 and 49, they're the ones who are most susceptible to advertising because they haven't lived 50 years yet and they haven't decided what brand is best for them. So they're more impressionable. They're more swayable to our advertising message. And they're over the age of 18, so they're, they're actual adults and they probably have incomes. So that's, that's why 18 to 49 is important. I, I think every viewer represents a household that's paying for cable or satellite, which is at least half of what's supporting the, the cable TV industry. So I think that's important too. But the demo is really important. And if, if your network is telling you, we don't care so much about total viewership, we care about 18 to 49 because we want to sell ads uh, against your program, then that's what you're going to value. And that's what you're going to keep in mind when you're putting your TV show together. 
So the 18 to 49, like you said, it's not because they have more money because obviously over 50 right. by proxy would have more money. But the 18 to 49, it's like being in a rock and roll band. You can still gain fans 18 to 49. You get into the over 50s, they've pretty much decided the bands that they're going to like for the rest of their life. And that's kind of it, right? Yeah, I, I guess once you turn 50, you, you stop trying new things or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. I can tell you that's not exactly true <laughs> after being 50. Yeah. But according to the advertisers, that's kind of the, the information that they've surmised. And even when you compare like the TV ratings between W and AEW, I think that's that sort of shows itself in that comparison too. In terms of there were you know famously a couple weeks where Dynamite exceeded Raw in the same week in eighteen to forty nine, but the total viewership for for Raw and SmackDown are way above still. Yes, and that's you know entirely buoyed by this larger audience of people over the age of 50 who you know, apparently watch this program. I know it's, it's hard for a lot of people to reconcile because because we don't imagine, at least I don't imagine, the average person who's watching a wrestling program to be over the age of 50 or something, you know, the median age of NXT sometimes is like in the 60s, which is hard, Crazy, hard yeah. to imagine. <laughs> but I don't know if that that's just the nature of linear television in that it's just a lot of older people watching and not that many younger people who are left watching. And what I notice when there's a really big TV show, like say the return of CM Punk on Rampage, mm -hmm. the 18 to 34, so the younger half of what we call the demo, was really high, way higher. It had this massive peak and then relaxed back to normal. So it's, it seems to me like younger people are really, really choosy with when they're going to engage with traditional TV and when they're not. Well, you mentioned, like you said, under 18, like my daughter's who are under 18 and my son as well, who is 18. There's so much watching YouTube and watching phones, you know, stranger things come out and then they're all into that or impractical jokers or, you know, the certain types of, of shows that they all enjoy. But when it comes to watching normal, you know, terrestrial, like you said, linear television, that gets less and less by, by the year, especially network TV, like, you know, ABC, NBC, I'm only watching those channels basically for live sports. Right. And I think that's why live sports, including wrestling, is so valuable to these networks. For sure. Yeah. Live sports and news, Th things that you have to watch in the moment. I thought a way of putting it is like, you know, stream things that can go on streaming are evergreen. These are things that you can watch at any time. Yes. And that's what scripted programming is. And that's how we all talk about how we're, you know, we're binging this show or that show. And you can watch. Uh, you can watch The Sopranos from 1999, or you can watch Stranger Things, the latest season. All of that stuff is is good to watch for a, for a common viewer, no matter how old it is. But sports, very few people will watch an old baseball game or an old football game. Yeah, or, or tape the playoffs and watch it later on that night. You know, that's very rare. Right, yeah. I, I, I did have a friend who, like, didn't want... You know, NHL, you didn't want Sabres spoilers. I had to not, not spoil him on, on the Sabres game. But that's the exception. And, and news, I, I don't think people go out of their way to, to watch, uh, you know, what, what was on the news last night. They watch it as it's happening or not at all. You know, that's really determined the, the media world that we live in where scripted programming is more and more consumed on streaming platforms like Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and places like that. And wrestling has, has benefited from there's less and less interest in consuming TV of all varieties. Uh, and there's more and more interest in, in consuming wrestling or consuming live sports, which wrestling, at least it straddles the space between scripted programming and live sports. 
And and I think that's where the the libraries of wrestling companies are valuable too. In that you know, like I was saying before, the old stuff, the scripted programming is evergreen, and nobody goes back and watches old sports games. But people do go back and watch old wrestling all the time. At least mm. I do, and I think a lot of people do. And that's you know, wrestling has a unique value in that way. And I think that's bared out in the way that wrestling performs on, on DVR. Also, people will watch wrestling on DVR, right? You know, maybe up to a quarter of, of uh, AW or sometimes WWE's uh, audience is, is watching on DVR. So what you're saying, like, for example, I'll, I just pulled up on, on Showbuzz. Showbuzzdaily.com. Showbuzzdaily.com. Let's give them some credit. Uh, so last Wednesday, July 6th, uh, AEW was number one. And just to kind of confirm what we talked about earlier, it's number one in, in, in on the night with a, a demo of 0.36, which is 18 to 49. That's people 18 to 49. And the overall viewership is 979,000 people. Number two, Real Housewives. Actually, let's go down to number four. Tucker Carlson has 3.1 million. So that's three times the viewership. But the demo is only 0.25. So people that are Tucker Carlson fans go, how can you even compare the two? It's got almost four times the viewership, but almost half the demo in a lot of ways, or you know, two-thirds of the demo less one third of the demo less. So that just shows right there how important this actual demo is to the advertisers that are putting up the money and the networks that are putting up the money for these shows. Because I, I don't know, but I would bet that the ads that are being sold against AEW are being sold for more money than the ads being sold against Tucker Carlson because yes, Tucker Carlson has 3.1 million viewers. Yes, that is like three times what AEW delivered in total on that night. But AEW has a, a larger 18 to 49 demo by a pretty wide margin. Tucker Carlson has a big P50 plus audience, but that audience is not as valuable to advertise to as 18 to 49. Gotcha. Because people be like, oh, you never talked about the demos in, in during the Monday Night Wars. That's not necessarily true. Demos have always been important, correct? So my understanding, I, I asked somebody who worked in the TV industry and, and they said that they have never sold an ad against P2 plus against the total audience that gotcha. ad demos have always been used. I think they've become especially a tense issue in wrestling because, for, well, for one thing, there is this difference between the total viewership and the demo. Whereas I don't think there was such a difference like, like we're seeing here because the average TV viewer has, has become older and older. And if we flash back to like 20 years ago, there wasn't such an old skewing TV viewer the difference between the demo and the total viewership would not be as as big as it is today. I, I saw a, the 2008 episode of Raw had a median age of like 34 or something like that. And today the median age is 55. Jeez. Which would essentially be the same people watching, right? Because they were 34 20 years ago and now they're 54 now. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I guess my, my point is to just illustrate how old the, the average TV viewer is today versus in the past. You know, in, the, in the 90s, I imagine it was just the average – it was closer to whatever the average age or the median age was of people who were you know, living at that time. And now it's become – these, these different forms of media just have biases toward different ages. So I imagine streaming is exceptionally young and traditional TV viewing is exceptionally old because that's just the way that people of different ages consume their media. And also, like you said, there's also DVR ratings and they'll have, or they have like the, the, the rating plus three, the rating plus five, which is the, Seven, the people. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, now you mentioned for AW, let's pretend going back just for example with Showbuzz with 979 people watching 
how much more can we, you know, expect would be three days later off of a DVR, five days later? Is, is it another 20%? Is it 10%? It's somewhere around 20%. I think Rampage is especially consumed by it on, on, on DVR, probably because Friday it's on, night, people going out. Yeah. And it's, and it's later and people just aren't, aren't as apt to be near their televisions on, on, at 10 o'clock on Friday. Last I saw it, it was about 20% or so for Dynamite, about 20 to 30% for Rampage, maybe around 15% for, for the WWE programs. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Were you surprised? Initially, obviously, we start on Wednesdays. The Dynamite is announced on TNT, and then and then WWE kind of fires back with putting NXT on USA. You know, head-to-head battle, and, and that's exactly what it was. It was an attack, you know, by the evil empire, so to speak. Uh, laughingly, I say that, of course. But were you surprised at how low NXT's demo was against AEW and how much lower it is now when it's on its own on Tuesdays? Because I see sometimes it's like a .12 or a .13. That's a low, low demo for, for a major cable network. It's what NXT is doing now on the USA Network is comparable, maybe a little bit higher than what they would have as a, whatever would be in its place, a rerun of Law and mm. Order or something like that. When the Wednesday Night War was about to happen, everybody, I think, just had a blank slate about what are these programs going to deliver? It's just there's no history to look back on to make an educated guess here. I think I didn't like throw out maybe a million viewers for Dynamite. I don't know. Um, and th- there was a lot of you know reasonable debate, I think, about – different predictions about which program would would be the leader. I guess I, I thought that there was so much hype going into AEW that, I mean, look at how relatively well the first pay-per-view did, that maybe AEW would have the edge. At least in the demo, with the exception, I think there's only two weeks where AEW was behind NXT in the demo. Dynamite did take the lead in the demo and led in most weeks in total viewership as well. When the Wednesday Night War ended in April 2021, Dynamite immediately benefited in viewership. NXT benefited a little bit, but it's clear. I think the message to the average viewer, to the average wrestling fan is, you know, not that the average wrestling fan is like doing the sort of analysis that I'm doing and saying, oh yeah, Dynamite won won the the ratings war and, and now they're the superior brand or whatever. But I do think there was a perception of, you know, importance that was given to, to Dynamite in that case. And that was not so much given to, to NXT in that case. Again, NXT did benefit a little bit at the very beginning of, of the post Wednesday Night War era. But um, you know, as, as they've done NXT 2.0, that's their creative choice and how they want to develop talent now. But it's clearly a program that is not as as important as it felt earlier to wrestling fans. And, and the ratings are, are bearing that out. Now we're seeing for Dynamite, year-over-year comparisons... Because I think it's important to, to to look at year over year comparisons rather than just month to month because there's all this all these different seasonal effects. But now we're seeing dynamite year over year comparisons where we're comparing it to the post war era, if you will, 
And now we're getting some some sort of like what's Dynamite's growth really like now that we're not comparing it to a year prior where well they just they they had to go against NXT last year. To me, it really kind of showed the the pull of Dynamite and, and just kind of the draw of it. And that brings me to the next question. Now, when we're talking about these demos, and you mentioned that. It doesn't happen all the time, but there are times when, you know, an 18 to 34 or once in a while, you know, a 34 to 49 AEW demo will beat a WWE Raw demo. Mm -hmm. Is that as big of a deal as it seems to me in the television world that this hot young upstart is now touching or beating at times the demo of of, of the fortress of the WWE? It's a big deal on my Twitter, and people come after me hot when, when that happens, if I point it out. It's, uh, I think it's something that maybe TV people are, are impressed by, that you can, you can say, hey, we're, we're beating our competitor in, in, in this way. But um, I think what makes a TV show valuable is really its position relative to all other programming, not necessarily how you compare. Wrestling fans are very interested in how AEW compares to WWE. And I think that's worth studying for sure to see how the wrestling business is changing and who has the momentum. But I think that um, what your TV rights value is and what your ad value is, is it's part of this entire economy of sports and of other programming and whatnot. It's not just about how you compare to WWE, although I I think there's an argument to be made that, hey, if WWE is getting paid X and they're delivering this demo – we're delivering a demo that's comparable to it. That is, AEW is delivering a, a demo that's comparable to it. It's almost equal. You know, so you could say Dynamite's and uh, and Raw's uh, demo ratings are, are pretty comparable. You could argue that well, if they're being valued in this way, maybe we should be valued more so in that way. Because look, the Dynamite's getting forty four million dollars a year for three hours of content. You could look at Raw; it's getting two hundred sixty five million dollars a year for three hours of content. Raw is getting multiple times more for the same amount of content that AEW is delivering. So it it would suggest to me that AEW, understandably, at this moment is undervalued because they were a new property a few years ago and Network was taking a chance to put them on TV. But now a few years have gone by and this, this doesn't seem to be a show that's going to go away and it's going to diminish in viewership anytime soon. So I, I think there's an argument there that that AEW is undervalued. That will ultimately, what AEW is able to, to attract for US TV rights fees when their deal expires in 2024 will ultimately come down to what the incumbent network wants to bid for it. That is Warner Brothers Discovery. And are there other networks that want to, to bid and, and bid aggressively and would be a good match for AEW? It's like you know selling a house. If I sell my house and I, I can find one bidder, well, I, might, I, might, I might have to sell it for less than market value. But if I have two or three bidders or more than that, well, I'm going to get way more than market value for my house. And that's going to be a great deal for me. Well, I mean, and we can talk about that because one last thing I want to mention before we talk about kind of predictions here, and that's all they can be, is the value of being number one on the night. Now, it doesn't get any higher than number one. But for example, I guess about three, four weeks ago, there was an anomaly of a television week where the entire television viewing audience of cable completely was very, very low to the point to where AEW was number one, but I think it was like, a, I don't know, was it a point two seven or something along those lines? I'm, I'm sure you remember the week better than I do. Yeah, a point two eight, I believe, yeah. And so 
everyone was like, you know, the, the, the sky is falling on AW. It's 0.28. And I think it was down to, I don't know, 750,000. You probably know better than I do. But what could cause, because once again, you can't get any higher than number one. And if the entire cable viewership is down, well, number one is still number one. Kind of explain what happened that week. And did that hurt AW or is number one still number one? So on that, that's June 15th. Uh, they had 761,000 viewers for Dynamite, uh, 0.28 in the demo. It ranked number two among cable originals, which is the Showbiz Daily chart. So we're in June at that time. And summer does tend to be the time when people watch television less. And you see that. I've What I've done is I've scraped all the data that Showbiz Daily has ever reported. And I've right. used that to study like, okay. Yeah, and it, it, it is intuitive in that you know June, July, August, the total volume of viewership appears to be less than it is, say, in the winter when people are indoors. So that's part of what's happening there. I, I don't know. Maybe the TV show wasn't uh, as exciting that week, but, but I don't know. I think it's, it's easy get, to get swept up in, in one week's ratings and to think that this is a huge, meaningful difference because it, it was much higher the week prior. It was a 0.34 in the week prior, it was a 0.28 in that week. Right. But you wait a couple more weeks and it's, and it's back to a 0.36 in the two most recent weeks as, as we're talking today. So you, you don't know. And ultimately, you know, the, the Nielsen is based on a sample that's extrapolated upon the population. We're not actually surveying every television. <laughs> right. So who knows? And uh, seasonality probably has something to do with it. But I think the way data can be really misleading is if we focus on a few data points and it's less misleading it's definitely more meaningful when we look at months or or even years and that really evens out any of the anomalies or any of the weird stuff or any of the stuff that just you know that was just an anomaly that didn't really have anything to do with with reality Mm -hmm. so on the whole I, i would say Dynamite's viewership has been pretty steady and pretty consistent i think w's viewership has been pretty good lately too Especially, you know, Dynamite has, has benefited at least those first couple of quarters. I think you look at the quarter hours. Those first couple of quarters are especially benefited, uh, apparently, by the lead-in from the Big Bang Theory, which is among the, the most – it's incredible to me how, how many people are watching the Big Bang Theory on TBS, these reruns. <laughs> Can't get enough of, uh, of Sheldon. Yeah. Sheldon's a draw. So, th- and that, so that's the thing. And, and, and once again, we kind of mentioned it, but let's take the leap. All of this is dependent, you know, it's like how much is a, a Wayne Gretzky rookie card worth? Well, how much is somebody willing to pay for it? How much is Dynamite worth, you know, in January of 24 when the television deal expires? Now, I know what you said is there's a lot of factors. A, how much does Warner Discovery want to pay for it? B, how much does Fox want to pay for it or ESPN or whatever? So as, as somebody that kind of is, is involved in this quite deeply – is there a prediction that you have? Will there be other, you know, networks, platforms, corporations that would be interested in a live entertainment sports entity that's drawing these types of demos besides Warner Discovery? And how important is it for Warner Discovery to keep Dynamite and AW in the fold? I think if, if Warner Discovery doesn't hang on to Dynamite, you have to think about, like, what are they going to replace it with? Are they going to be able to replace it with something that's going to deliver similarly or better? And there's nothing obvious to me that they have or that they could acquire that could deliver superior ratings to Dynamite. The interesting thing with, with the merger that, that has just happened between Warner Media and Discovery 
is that now the CEO is David Zasloff, who is the CEO of Discovery. They don't have a huge track record of dealing with sports. They're going to have to deal with the NBA pretty soon, which is the second biggest sports property in the United States. But that, that's, a, that's a big deal. And you know they have the NHL, but the NHL is sort of already in its place. So I, I don't know what the other sports property is that they, that they would acquire that they would replace Dynamite with, or if there's some sort of unscripted TV strategy that they could uh, replace Dynamite with if they didn't want to renew it. But we'll see. And as far as other bidders, maybe Fox, that, there's a big question there if they want to keep SmackDown, maybe Disney slash ESPN, um, maybe Viacom, what everybody's waiting for and what we're seeing increasingly over the last year or so is whether or not these big uh, streaming companies, big tech companies are, are going to get more involved. Right. And those would include Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and, and things like that. And... WE has their their Hulu rights coming up, and we'll see what happens there. Uh, it's been hyped to me that that the Hulu rights, the next day rights for Raw and SmackDown, there's a ton of interest in that. But that will tell us, I think, how seriously the tech companies, if say Netflix comes up with the next day rights, that will tell us how seriously those companies are interested in wrestling content. I would think that Dynamite will stay on some sort of linear player, and it's been my... Uh, prediction or theory that Rampage might be a really good fit uh, for some sort of streaming player because we see Rampage get preempted a lot mm-hmm. and some of the some of the challenges that that Rampage has had in ratings lately I think it's partly due to, to the preemptions and, and breaking the habitual week after week uh, time slot and I think Rampage you know it's, it's probably if, if Rampage stays on TNT at 10 o'clock on Friday and it probably will for the duration of this TV deal but if it stays there forever it's, it's probably not going to end up in a situation where it doesn't get preempted or gets preempted less, I think it would be a good fit for a streaming platform where A, it doesn't get preempted and there's a lot of investment into streaming right now. So there's a lot of money being spent there and these platforms want to build up their audience. And while leaving Dynamite, let's say on a traditional network like TBS, you could have Rampage on a ideally a strong streaming platform and expand the reach of the people that you're able to to touch in their homes in that you have something like 80 million people who are subscribing to TBS, about 80 million homes have TBS in them. And then you can, there's about 120 million homes in the United States. And then maybe you can hit another 20 million or so homes on some good streaming platform. So just to ex- expand the reach as widely as possible. Hmm. That's been my theory. And, and, and no one will confirm or deny to me whether or not that's a good idea. But, uh, but that's my idea. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. over the last 45 minutes already is it linear tv is that what it's, is that what you would call it you could, you could call it linear tv traditional tv yeah. traditional so traditional tv is less and less important because kids i mean their phones are your whole tv now it's like that's all you need so to be on nbc whereas before like i'm watching a show right now called evil 
And the first season, I think it was on CBS or NBC or something along those lines. And now it's on Paramount Plus. So you don't even need actual network TV. It's almost kind of like a hindrance and probably costs money. I know a lot of people that have cut the cord, meaning they got rid of cable TV altogether. As long as you have that Apple TV with all the different, you know, okay, I've got Netflix and I've got Paramount Plus and I've got Hulu and I've got Disney Plus so I can watch freaking Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's like you literally could, if you weren't watching live sports, aka wrestling as well, not have network TV or cable TV. So these platforms and networks would seem to want to hold on to that live element, which would be currency for them. And I'm sure America's Got Talent and American Idol, whatever it is, probably have the same value to them as well. Yeah. And I, I've never been a cable subscriber. I have Sling now, which is what they call a virtual form of cable or satellite. So I'm counted in that. Okay, right. Gotcha. Yeah. The thing is, cable is still a really profitable business, despite the diminishing subscribers over time. And that's largely kept up by by people who continue to pay their cable bills, which is why I think there's there's some value to, to be had in looking at the P2 Plus number, the total viewership number. Sure. So it's it's still really profitable. But those profits are dwindling as subscribers dwindle. The big question is whether streaming will ever be as profitable as as the cable industry has been. And, th- and that's really not clear. And you look at things like Peacock, where they're dumping billions of dollars in, into content. Uh, Netflix is profitable. Yeah. But the big story is that Netflix just hit a, hit a ceiling, apparently, for subscribers in that you know they have 60 million some odd subscribers in, between the United States and Canada. And that has that that stopped growing a while ago, but their global subscriber base now. Oh, they thought they had all this international growth, maybe st- still to gain, but uh, their their global subscribers have have peaked as well. There's other streaming platforms, obviously many others, but they're much newer, so they're still acquiring their their initial base. Well, I think what what a lot of them did because now, like you said, originally Netflix was the one, and if you want to go watch Evil. Well, it's on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? Well, now that question isn't even asked as much because all of the different entities went, well, why are we giving all of our stuff to Netflix? You know, I I own Star Wars. Well, we'll just do our own thing on Disney and Paramount Plus. Well, we'll do our Yellowstone and Evil and Hulu's going to do Murders in the Apartment, whatever it's called. Like All of these great shows are now fragmented because each property is going to just start up its own streaming service. Which means Netflix has less command over the market because now instead of paying five bucks for, for Netflix, you need five bucks a month for all these other ones as well. Absolutely, that that's the one thing I hear from people is that they, they want one they want one central location that they can turn on their TV and they can find all of their content. I said that's that's called the that's called cable TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not going to happen anymore. Like I was I, I was going through a Godfather phase over the last few days and it's like oh go to Netflix they don't have the Godfather so then where's Godfather? Oh, it's on Amazon Prime. Okay, well, then I'll go to Amazon Prime to watch the Three Godfathers. So Netflix is irrelevant and all these other platforms. So it's getting kind of confusing, which I can understand why, once again, this live wrestling property means so much more because you could hang your hat. I mean, Peacock, I don't know all about Peacock other than the fact that you can watch WrestleMania on it now. They've hung their hat on the WWE banner, correct? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's turned out really well for them. You say what you want about Peacock overall and whether or not it's successful. You know, WWE reports that you know each pay per view they go on their earnings call and they t- they tell you you know this pay per view that we just did the premium live event you're supposed to call it now uh, was <laughs> was X percent more viewed 
that than the same pay per view of the same name the, the prior year. Right, and and that makes sense because there's you know well over twenty million homes that have Peacock in it. You think about what, what the W Network had at the end in the U.S. That was about one point one million homes. So you go from one one point one million homes to multiple times more than that, and that's really expanded the reach of how many homes that that this content is in. As I've you know paid attention to this stuff, and especially the, what what Peacock has done has really hit me in that. Yes, there's value in a network paying you money for your content, but one of the values that they give you too is is the reach. What I've seen in in a lot of different areas that I study, whether it's you know, TV ratings or web search or YouTube viewing, or w- what we can see now, and now that we're about one year into the return to touring, I think you know W's popularity was on on the decline for a number of years, from about 2017 to about 2021. But I think that has really flattened, and it's maybe even growing a little bit now. You know, there's a lot of reasons we could theorize about why that's happening. You know, maybe Rowan, Rowan Reigns is, is this big star now, but I think at least a big component of it is that their monthly big events are now in way more homes and are being far more watched than they were before. And I think that's that's a that's an underrated aspect. And I think that's what happened in 2014 too. I think there was a, a an increase in popularity in, in a number of areas from about 2014 to 2017, and that coincides with the beginning of the network. And a lot more people watching pay-per-views than ever watched them before. Mm-hmm. Just more engagement and that and that led to a lot of downstream benefits. But it's interesting too, when you talk about AEW pay-per-views, that's still a, a good moneymaker for us. Even if you're talking about, you know, Forbidden Door that did 127, which is on the low end, but that's still way higher than than I expected. I was like, if, yeah, same. if we do 100, we're doing great. And to do that much more... So, you know, if you take that, I mean, you're looking at, I just did some quick facts and figures. That's a $6.3 million at 50 bucks a pop for just Forbidden Door. Times that by five, you're at $32 million and we've got more than that. So you're probably talking about $40, $45 million being made from pay-per-views uh, in AEW, which is huge. Now, it's not sustainable for the whole company, but it's a huge extra set of revenue that you could use as a bargaining chip. To sell to one of these platforms, correct? Absolutely, and and that's that's the one big area for growth that that AEW you know, has not gotten into yet is some form of streaming. Right, you can buy a pay per view through streaming through places like Bleacher Report and Fight International. Yeah. yeah, and international viewers are watching Dynamite through Fight. But we'll, we'll see what what AEW does. I understand AEW is working on on possibly doing a, a fast network or fast channel of some sort. What does that mean? Fast means free ad-supported TV. So that's things like Pluto and things like Tubi. They're, these are things that are on your TV. You can just gotcha. hit the app, open it, and you got all these different channels on there that, that have ads on them, but uh, don't cost you anything to, to watch. And AEW owns the Ring of Honor library now. Maybe that's a place where, where that could live. And AEW is you know, continuing to grow a library of its own. But yeah, maybe there's a way for AEW to sell its pay-per-view rights to some sort of some sort of streaming platform and get a peacock-like deal, and I think if not, maybe there's a way for AEW to do something more so on their own that continues to build value and build a track record that eventually could be used to leverage a deal like that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal. And when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
as, as we start to wind down, I don't want to delve too far in the weeds to it, but and I'm subscribing to your Patreon now. Thank you. Because I was sick of Don Callis sending me ratings before Mookie did. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I see names sometimes. I'm like, is, is this the real person? It's me. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, this question goes two ways. First of all, we'll ask you this now. So, so how are you getting these ratings so quickly and where do you get them from? Because they're very intricate. Like, for example, when I get your, your reports here, it's got every single demo and it's got, you know, how, like, for example, P2, P18 to 49. That's people, males 18 to 49, females 18 to 49. It's got plus 30, plus two, plus 10. Minus five, and then you've got the most viewed YouTubes on Dynamite, and then you've got graphs and charts, and yeah. it's very intricate information. Where are you getting all this from? Well, a lot of it comes from Showbiz Daily, which we were just looking at, showbizdaily.com. Anybody can look at that. So you wait for that to come out and then start doing rapidly do your, your report and send it out? or Okay. So there's Showbiz Daily, and then I also have – there are people who, who are kind enough to, to – who have access to Nielsen data. Gotcha. But I have – I've taught myself in the last year a programming language called Python, and there are like timed scripts that help help me do do the work of I don't know dozens of people. I would like to think <laughs> put all that information together very quickly because people want to know the the rating right away. And and what I'm trying to to give in those reports is some meaningful analysis, not just you know what it did compared to last week, because who knows whether last week was an anomaly, but to compare it to like the last four weeks to say okay, here's what it normally does. And this is how it compared to the last four weeks, if that's a good representation of the norm. And I think the YouTube numbers tell us a pretty clean story. YouTube is a is not a great place to make money compared to TV. Let's not get that confused. But YouTube, I think, does tell us something about the interest that fans have in, in a given segment because AEW and WWE mm, put out these highlights of their shows and some of that, in AEW's case, might be biased by how they release them because AEW will release a couple of highlights from TV every, let's say, 12 hours or something like that. It's not all at once. In W's case, it is all at once, so it's more of a, of a fair measurement. I think it does tell us a lot about how much interest there is among fans, and it's a global number, how much interest there is among fans for any of these given segments. We can look at quarter hours, too. Quarter hours are interesting to look at, and they're meaningful, and that's the TV viewership is is really important. Quarter hours are really easy to misread. As, as I share, you know, quarter hour charts on Twitter and stuff, you get people who just, you know, they, they want to know that their favorite wrestler is a draw and they want to know that their least favorite wrestler is an anti-draw. But quarter hours can be misleading in that. There are all these factors that go into it. So if you're in Q1 on Dynamite, for example, there's a good chance that your quarter is going to be the most viewed quarter on the show because it's getting a, a pretty strong lead-in most times from the Big Bang Theory. If you're on at the top of the hour, the top of the hour just tends to do pretty well. Uh, so you're, you're, you're at a pretty good advantage there. If you're on in quarter hour number seven, the quarter hour right before the final quarter hour, you're kind of at a disadvantage relative to the rest of the show because that's the quarter that just tends to not do as well as the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that, but it, you know what was on before you? Was that a really big segment? And did you lose a little bit of viewership because you weren't as big as that segment? That's not necessarily you know a, a criticism against you. And then there's, you know, you've got in quarters especially. Now, if you've got minute-by-minute minute ratings, that's a different story. But if you're talking about quarters, we're looking at an arbitrary 15-minute block of time. And there might have been three segments in this quarter. Oh, and there were ads in it too. Right. Ads tend to chase off about 20% of the audience. Most of them come back, but they check out during the ad. Not to mention what came on at 9 o'clock if you were on at the top of the hour. Well, the, the hockey game started at 9 o'clock. Maybe that took away a little, a little bit of the, of the viewership as well. So all of that mess... 
which we should deal with, which I should deal with. That's there. But if we look at YouTube views, a lot of that stuff is, is not there. Yes, that tells the tale. Well, even so, I mean, like, for example, with, with uh, Blood and Guts, you know, the overall was 0.36, and I think it was 1.1. But if the actual Blood and Guts itself, the, you know, 50 minutes of that, the demo was 0.4, and the overall was closer to 1.2, 1.25, something along those lines, right? You know this better than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, trust me, I am a numbers guy. Anybody that works with me knows that. That's why I'm so interested in this. I never got any of this info in WWE. You might get the quarter hours if one of the you know writers sent them to you on the sly, but they kept that information from from all the the guys. And there was no Showbuzz Daily to really go into it then, or no WrestleNomics where you could buy into it. So when AEW started, that was one of the first things. Being kind of one of the you know the founders of the company, you know, if you will, I was very much involved in all the ratings at first. And never even really knew how much of a difference there was between minute by minutes and quarter hours and really kind of delved into that. So every week when I get the reports, I follow the graph every single minute of my segment. What was good? What was bad? Okay, it dipped here because like you said, there's a commercial. Came back up. Did it continue to grow? All that stuff means something because everybody's looking at it, especially Tony Khan, because he is the epitome of a numbers guy. For sure. Yeah. I guess the last couple of questions I wanted to ask you. If you're talking about, you mentioned the Vince McMahon situation. Now, obviously, I don't want to get into it, the actual components of it, but it's a scandalous potential to be very scandalous. Is that something that affects the ratings or deep down inside, do people really care? Well, the, the night, so June 17th is the day that he stepped down as uh, CEO and chairman. Right. Stephanie was put in his place. He's still head of creative. But they advertised also that day that he was going to be on SmackDown. Now, SmackDown had a really high rating. It did about 2.4 million viewers, which was its highest viewership in, we could say, months at least. So that was a really high rating. And then on Raw, yes, he appeared on Raw, but his, his appearance was not advertised. Raw did a pretty strong rating too. Even NXT, which he didn't appear on at all, did a pretty strong hmm. rating relative to what it usually does. I think WWE just ended up more on top of mind for people during that week. I, I guess you're asking, are, are we going to see people you know, think about the scandal and say, I don't know if I want to watch this? We're not seeing that yet. In the short term, WWE being in the news increased viewership, it seems. I, I personally think at the bottom line, people just like their wrestling and you know, it's not like it's going to really make much of a difference in the end. And I wonder how engaged fans are. I mean, when he comes out, the people were still still cheering him. Of course, yes, and they, yeah, exactly. You kind of put that aside and just be so excited, like, oh, there's Vince, yippee, you know? Yeah, and, and I think it's something that's you know, worth a lot of scrutiny and a lot of coverage. But if you look at the audience, I, I I don't get the sense that the audience is super engaged on the story, or if they are, they're receiving him positively still. So that's still happening. If you have to guess. And like I said, this is just ballpark. What do you think AEW can get? Because we mentioned if you're talking about Raw at, was it 250, $265 million? Two, $265 million, yep. And AEW's at $44 million a year and sometimes touching the sun of those demos and sometimes even beating them. Not every night, not every month, but it has happened before. If you had to take a, a guess, what do you think the Dynamite brand, the AEW brand would be worth? I, I did the math. We did a, a video where I, I broke it all down and I compared. So to, to, to determine WWE, I, I looked at how the NHL was valued uh, by Turner in its recent deal, the recent deal that, that put the NHL on TNT. I, I got to 
justifying just based on the viewership and based on the NHL value, I got to justify WWE getting a 1.5x increase. Their, their deal is up in September 2024. And then based on that, I could get to you know as high as five times the current value for AEW, which would be... 220. Yeah, $220 million. So, you, it's, so that's for presumably three hours of content every week, two hours of Dynamite, one hour of, of Rampage. That would still be lower than what Raw is getting for three hours of content now. But that, that's what I was able to get to based on what the viewership is that the, all those shows are delivering. NHL, I think I was even considering Premier League in there. Unbelievable. Raw, SmackDown, and, and AEW. It, based on the math, there's, it's easy to make that argument. Now, whether TV executives and whether David Zasloff and his team are going to value Dynamite in the same way is, is pretty uncertain to me. And whether or not, more importantly, there will be other bidders who are seriously interested in, in having something like AEW on their network. Th- those are the big questions to me. How much would that change the whole wrestling landscape if that happened? If AEW went up, you know, 44 to 200, I mean, suddenly you've got a whole different different level of competition here. If, if that happens, I think if, if AEW gets a, at least, a, let's say, double or more, then we have sort of a, it's, it's an even more entrenched, even more permanent AEW and, and WWE wrestling landscape. And WWE still ends up being this far bigger brand getting a lot more TV revenue, especially if they get something like a 1.5x increase. WWE ends up being, they're making about a billion dollars now per year. They reported $1.1 billion yeah. last year. I, I think they're going to get closer to $1.2, $1.3 billion in this year. If they get a 1.5x increase in their current TV rights fees, you know, you can imagine how, how positively that will affect their revenues for the, let's say, the next five years, if it's a five-year deal. So that would be going into like 2030 or something like that. And AEW, I've estimated that AEW makes, you know, maybe AEW made around, I don't know, $80 million last year in revenue. So it's, it's, it's still a fraction. Now, even if you give AEW a nice multiple on their TV rights fees, AEW is still going to be making substantially less revenue than WWE. But to wrestling fans, I think it's, it's into wrestlers. It's going to continue to be a, a competition between two pretty strong wrestling companies. And I think it continues to be a good environment for at least the top wrestlers because there's going to be two companies that are pretty healthy financially that are going to be able to compete over talent. Well, I mean, that's, that's like you said, it's coming up very soon, less than a year and a half away, and the, the tale will be told very soon. So, uh, Brandon, last question for you. Going back to your uh, wrestling days, what stands out as your favorite match that you ever had? That's tough. Daniel Garcia and I had a match in 2019 locally here in Buffalo. And we had never had a singles match up to that point. But I think people, you know, because I did a lot to help train him. I think people saw a lot of the similarities. And I, I would like to think I, I teach him a lot of things that I see on TV sometimes when he does like the Volcan Sambo role and stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. And uh, they had the car accident, which, which you know about. Right, of course. We yeah. were supposed to wrestle like in in – that January, which is the month that the car accident happened, he had to recover from, from two broken legs. And uh, he eventually he was able to wrestle again in June. I was the local champion for Empire State Wrestling at the time. So as, as soon as he was healthy, I was like, let's just do the match. And people were so behind him. And we'd had a couple confrontations on shows up to that point that were super hot. It was everything that I sort of became a wrestler to do was to have this really serious sports-like build this really serious sports-like match 
Right. And, and to be able to do it between two local wrestlers from Buffalo and as, as hopefully some sort of showing about how, how far along Buffalo wrestling has developed. That, that was a really special match to me. And there was, there was some question about what he, he, he went over in the match, uh, beat me with the sharpshooter, but there was some question about, you know, who, who should go over here. And I was like, if, if, if he doesn't go over, that's going to be bad for, for this company. That's going to be bad for, for me. It's going to be bad for him. I'm not going to get out of the, the room alive because they will come after me <laughs> because he would, that had become such a big story. The, the car accident and, and everybody had gotten behind them. So they were kind of huge baby faces coming off of that. So that, that was a really, really special match. And uh, that was uh, uh, hopefully, a, I think of it as like a, a passing of the torch from, from whatever level I was at as, as sort of a regional wrestler and, and to see him become this national wrestling star. One of the lieutenants in the Jericho Appreciation Society. Absolutely. <laughs> Hey, dude, thank you so much for this information. It's very interesting to me. And uh, as you can tell, I'm a numbers guy. That's where the demo god came from. And it's very, very cool to get this information from you every week. So every time I see the notification Patreon, I'm like, oh, what's he got for me now? (laughs) That's great. Yeah, thank you so much for letting me talk to your audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you, dude. Keep on giving me those numbers. I need them. Will do.